One of the most important questions that we can ask in life is the question, why? Having an an understanding around why we do what we do, what is the motivating factors in our hearts and in our inner orientations, the things that we do help us to learn to live a life that thrives and flourishes. Like, have you ever wondered why you just do some of the things that you do? Like, I don't know about you, if you like to barbecue or, or cook, why every time we pick up a pair of these do we have to go? Right? Anybody not pick these up and chase after your wife or kids? Like, that's what you're supposed to do, right? Why? Why when I'm having trouble seeing through the windshield of the car, do I feel like I have to turn the radio down? Anybody do that? You're like, oh, I can't see very well. Let me turn the radio down. Right? What, what is that about? Or, or my favorite is, why do I go back to the refrigerator 30 seconds later, just hoping that a ham would magically appear? Like, oh man, like the grocery store bunny is just going to slide in a whole order between the last 30 seconds. Why do we do these things? But in all seriousness, there is, it's really important to know why. Why do we do what we do? Why do we pursue the relationships that we pursue? Why do we pursue the careers that we pursue? Or why do we do what we do with our finances? And I think all of us have this desire to flourish in life. And God tells us in his word that that's his goal for us is to grow more and more like Jesus and flourish. But yet, why do we do the things that we do? Jesus, if you uh, pick up your Bible and thumb through the first five books of the, or four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you see the biographies of Jesus, the Gospels. And you see over and over again, Jesus speaking to people and Jesus calling out to them saying, follow me. Have you ever wondered why? I, I think there is this interesting question that we all have to ask when we're thinking to ourselves about life and what we do, especially when it comes to faith, why do we do it? And Jesus says, follow me, but why? There's a study last year that found that there are over 4,000 religions in the world. It's a lot of religions. Why so many? You know, one, one thing is, seems to be true is that deep inside of us, whether you say that you're pursuing God or not, there's this desire inside of us to know God to understand God, to have this this conceptual understanding of of who God is and why you're here and why you exist. And it's really led mankind for, for millennia to pursue God and try to figure out who he is. And because of our forgetfulness and because of our hard heartedness, we've really settled for a false picture of, of God, one that seems to be full of rules instead of relationships. You know, it's interesting. If you take all 4,000 of those religions in the world, 75% of people fit within, you know, the big five of Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism. And there are just these, you know, kind of segmented segmented groups out there. We've got so many different groups that, that say, I'm trying to pursue God, but you know what they all have in common except one? that we have to do something to earn God's favor, that we have to do something to be right with God, to have God's blessings in our life. But you know the only one that doesn't is what we read about in 
this book right here. It's faith in Jesus. So when Jesus calls us to follow him, he's not calling us to follow a set of rules or to ascribe to a, a set of truths. He's calling us to is a relationship, a relationship with Jesus himself. Let me ask you a question. What do you call somebody who believes in Jesus? Like if you met somebody on the street or you're talking to somebody and they ask you about your faith, how do you define yourself? You are a Christian, right? You meet somebody on the street and you talk about faith and you hear, hear that they believe in Jesus too. Often you'll refer to that person as a Christian. You know, if you open your New Testaments and look, the word Christian, how many times do you think the word Christian is used in the New Testament? Three. Just three times. On the other hand, there's another word that's used a lot, and that's the word disciple. Somebody say disciple. The word disciple is actually used 269 times. And a few weeks ago, we shared that probably the best modern day translation of the word disciple is the word apprentice. Somebody say apprentice. When I got my first job out of college, I went to work for a, a smallish company, but our home office was small. And I spent a lot of time with our owner. And he would tell me stories and we would do long car drives to meetings and we would have lunches. And over time, I began to listen to his stories, to hear about life, to see the way he spoke to people, to see the way he treated people. And it shaped so much of who I am today. Jesus calls us to be an apprentice to him when he asks, invites us to follow him. I love Mark, John Mark Comer's definition of an apprentice. Here's what he says. He says, an apprentice, to follow Jesus then, is meant to walk alongside him in a posture of listening and learning, observation, obedience, and imitation. See, notice in here, there's nothing about keeping rules. There's nothing in here about making sure you do the right things or you pray at the right time or you do all of these little things, these nuanced things at, at all. It's not. It's a relationship with Jesus. And notice why. Notice what he says, why we do this. He says, so we can master the art of living in God's good world by, by learning from Jesus how to make steady progress into the kingdom of God. Notice, notice what he said there, it is the art of living in God's good world. For so long, if you ask somebody, why do you follow Jesus? The answer was, so I can go to heaven someday when I die. That is a beautiful reality of following Jesus. But Jesus says in Mark 1, verse 15, that he, the, the kingdom of God is at hand, that he came to bring the kingdom of heaven down here. So what Jesus is saying is that it's not just about getting into heaven. It's about getting heaven into you. And that's what following Jesus is all about, learning to live in this kingdom of heaven. So why do we follow Jesus? Because Jesus is inviting you and me into this beautiful reality, into this beautiful relationship where we're living God's kingdom here on earth. He's inviting us to, into a new overall way of life. And he teaches us the practices to put into place so we can experience it at its fullness. One day, Jesus was on, sitting on a rolling hill outside of the town of Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee. And he was speaking to a large crowd that day about the kingdom of heaven. And I want you to notice what he says. 
Look here, in, look here in Matthew verse six or chapter six, verse 19. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. Jesus taught about a lot of stuff. And if you've been with us the last month and a half, we've been talking about how Jesus models prayer and how he models Bible reading and how he models service and how he models being the church and how he models sharing your faith. But if there's one thing Jesus talked about most, it was the danger of a lack of generosity. And so I want you to notice right here in this this text, Jesus is talking about how the love of money or stuff or treasure or belongings or, or whatever it is has a unique ability to grip our hearts unlike anything else, most things at least. And, and unlike most things in, in life, this desire it tricks us and it steals our affections. And notice Jesus here ties in our heart with what we treasure. Jesus says that God shapes our heart you're going to see through the practice of generosity. But notice this. He says, we begin the practice of generosity as we begin the practice of laying up our treasure in heaven. But then he says something really interesting. I want you to notice this. This is really interesting. Look at, ver- look at verse 25. He- he's talking about generosity. He's talking about money. He's talking about st- stacking up treasure on-, on earth. And then he immediately jumps into anxiety. Now, that's a big jump, it seems. And I don't know about you if you've ever read this section of text from Jesus and put the two of these together, but I want you to notice what he says. Notice what he says. He says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink, or nor about your body, what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? In the same conversation that Jesus speaks about treasure, he, he talks about anxiety, And he uses the examples that we're all going to make sense of, right? What we eat, what we wear, what we live, the things that grapple most of our thoughts during the day. And he ties that in with anxiety. Somebody say anxiety. Reality is we're all anxious. Anybody here not anxious right now? Good. One, one of you, you guys should not be anxious right now. You're at church. (laughs) Obviously, Talking about generosity makes everybody anxious. Any of you not anxious at all this week? One person, I love it. I love it. More of us can be not anxious this week, but anxiety is something that is just natural that we deal with. And I believe, I truly believe that maybe the biggest example of the fact that we live in a broken world that's been ravaged by sin is the fact that anxiety exists at the level that it exists today. The reason we struggle with anxiety in so many ways is because we live in this broken world and sin is ugly and it courses through our veins. And that's why Jesus came to show us a better way. You know, it's, not, it's been said, there's recent studies have said that 19% of people have a general anxiety or an anxiety disorder of some kind, general anxiety being one of them. But what about the other 81% of people? Well, we deal with anxiety too. Cleveland Health Clinic uh, put together kind of a, a description of what anxiety does to you. Here's a picture. Healthline posted this. Here's a picture of just the damage that anxiety does to your body and to your health. It, it gives you difficulty concentrating, 
You can have chest pain, uh, chest tightness, lightheadedness, um, headaches. We have social withdrawal, loss of interest, uh, constant worry, feelings of irritability, breathing problems, high blood pressure, muscle aches, loss of sex drive, your stomach hurts, your heart's beating, and you're extremely tired. All because of anxiety. Now, let me ask you this. If that is your condition, are you flourishing? Unfortunately, not. I want you to notice what Jesus says is saying here. Jesus is saying that one of the main reasons that we're anxious strikes from worry and stress from having the wrong view of money. That so much of our stress comes from worrying about money and worrying about our finances. And that stress and worry leads itself to anxiety. And anxiety keeps us from flourishing because it bleeds into all areas of our life. See, I know about this, this about my life. When, when I am worried about what I have in my hands, it bleeds into every other part of my life. Like when I'm worried about what I have in my hands, I find myself in a rush. I find myself in a hurry. I find myself short with people. Anybody been there? I, I find my, myself... Um, not speaking kind words to the person at the counter when I'm picking up fast food or coffee. I find myself barking orders to my kids. I find myself not being very kind to my wife. And why is that? Because anxiety and worry bleeds into our lives. And it makes us sick and it makes us stressed. And it's really ruining our, ruining our lives. And I wonder... If you're like me, have you experienced this too? See, I I want you to miss this. Jesus is saying we can push this anxiety to the side with the practice of how we view money and how we view generosity. Notice this. Jesus tells them, if you go back to Matthew 6, go back and read it later. Jesus says, look around. Look at the birds of the sky. Look at the lilies in the field. Look at all the beautiful things God prepares for. So don't be anxious because you can't add a year of life to your life. He says somewhere else, you can't add a hair to your head. We know that one is true. He says this instead, verse 31, therefore, do not be anxious. Okay, Jesus, yeah, that's just easy. Tell me how to feel. But then he gives us the tip on how. But seek first, verse 33. If you have your Bible out, you need, I would recommend you highlight this or star this or color code it or whatever you do. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Notice what Jesus says here. He says, when we seek God's kingdom and the things that we do, when we invest in God's kingdom instead of our own, life gets simpler. There is something interesting about that, that when we focus on God's kingdom and before ours, life gets simpler. Life slows down. If you've lived this life, you know things slow down. You're not in such a hurry anymore, and your priority shifts from what I can do to what Jesus is doing. And and as I start to to open my hands up, because it's not about what I can hold anymore, it's about what Jesus is doing Jesus replaces my anxiety with something else. What do you think it is? Any guesses? Peace is one of them. 
It's also joy. Look at this example in First Corinthians or First Chronicles twenty-nine. So in First Chronicles twenty-nine, this is a really cool situation. David, King David, Old Testament king, decides that he wants to build the temple for God, and he asks God, "God, can I build your house?" And God says, "No, actually, you can't. You're a man of bloodshed, but I want your son Solomon to build it." So when Solomon was young, David decides he's going to start collecting money and things for what he's going to need to build this temple. And so David gives out of his own treasury, and he calls the people of Israel to give towards this temple. I want you to to see what happens. This temple isn't even built yet, but I want you to see what what happens here. Notice in 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 6, it says, Then the leaders of fathers' houses made their freewill offerings. Notice the word freewill. David invited them to give, but they were not required to give. David invited them to give, and they gave their free will offerings, as also did the leaders of the tribes, the commanders of thousands and of hundreds, and the officers over the king's work. And whoever had precious stones gave them to the treasury of the house of the Lord. Then the people rejoiced because they had given willingly. Notice that word. The people, what did they do? They rejoiced because they had given begrudgingly, willingly. Notice that. Don't miss that. For with a whole heart they had offered freely to the Lord, David the king also rejoiced greatly. Now notice this. God will replace anxiety with joy when we freely give, when we willingly give. If you give because somebody's forcing you to give, it's like the guy that knocks on your door that tries to sell you solar. He, he has to, you have to decide right then. If you guys sell solar, it's a great, I hear it's a great career. But you have to decide right then. Like often you want to think about these things. If somebody knocks on your door and wants to sell you something, you have to decide right then, yes or no. What God is calling us to do is to willingly, we're not being sold anything, but we're willingly giving. We're willingly being generous. And when we willingly, freely give, God tells us that we are actually overcome with joy. It's interesting, isn't it? Now, now, many of you know I have certain things that I love in my life, right? Like I love Jesus. I love my wife. I love my kids. I love the church. I love the chiefs. (laughs) And I love barbecue. You guys know this. That's why I keep these handy. You guys didn't know, but I just walk around with these actually. But you know what's interesting about great food? is how many of you know this? That first bite of great food is just like, oh. And then the second bite, it's pretty good. How about the 43rd bite? Meh. It's kind of mid, as the kids say today. It's kind of meh. It's still good. Why is that? Why is the second taste not as good as the first? Well, actually, sociologists refer to this as hedonic adaptation. Somebody say hedonic. Adaptation. See, you guys learned something today. If you go home, you can say, I learned why the third piece of pizza is not as good as the first, or the fifth piece of cake is not as good as the first, right? So this is the idea that hedonic adaptation says that the, it's the concept that the happiness we feel after we experience something goes down each time we experience it. It's natural. That's why you should only have one bite of cake, right? Or zero, actually, unless it's gluten-free and sugar-free. 
Now, interesting, a few years ago, a study was done at the University of Chicago and the University of Northwestern. And what they did was, and this is, this is a, a, an interesting study, they took five bucks, they gave it to 96 people. Half the group, they said, go buy something for yourself. The other half, they said, go do something nice. So go tip somebody at a coffee shop or go buy something to give to somebody or just give somebody five bucks. So 96 people, half of them spent it on themselves, half of them uh, spent it on somebody else, and they did it for five days. In this study, interestingly, we see hedonic adaptation in full display. The people that spent it on themselves every day were less happy. First day was really fun. Second day, not as much fun. And by the fifth day, it had decreased in happiness every single time. But what about the other group? What they found was after five days of that group spending five bucks on somebody else, just five bucks, their happiness was exactly the same on day five as it was day one. See, there, there's a reality here we see in science that's, um, that's been shared with us in God's word for a long time. It's this, that God has hardwired us to experience joy through open-handed generosity. Like one of the best, quickest ways to experience joy is just by being open-handed with what we have. Again, we grip hard, we close our hands down and we get anxious. When we open our hands up, God will replace our anxiety with joy. So this is the power of practicing generosity. And so I wanna share a verse with you today about this beautiful thing that happens when we open up our hands and it, from, from freely giving to God. And we read about it in the, in the book of 2 Corinthians. If you have your Bibles, grab those, flip to 2 Corinthians. If not, we'll put the words on the screen. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, the, the Apostle Paul is talking about the, the believers in Jerusalem, and they've experienced hard times. A lot of them lost their jobs. A lot of them got kicked out of their homes for putting their faith in Jesus. And so Paul's going to take up this offering from the churches in Asia Minor and Europe, and he's going to take it down to Jerusalem to bless the saints down there. And I want you to notice that he is talking about this idea of generosity that flows freely. And notice what he says here in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. He says, before he even tells them to give, he says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Paul says, do you want to know why we should be generous? It's because Jesus was generous first. Notice, look back at that verse again. Notice what he said. He, he says that Jesus became poor for us. How did Jesus become poor for us? He stepped out of heaven into the world that he made that we messed up. And he lived a perfect life for us. He went to the cross and gave his life for us. He rose from the grave for us. And then when we say yes to him, when we repent and believe, when we say, Jesus, I have tried my own way and it doesn't work, but I believe that you are the son of God and in you, I can have new life. And we put our faith in Jesus. We are given a new life, the ability to now pursue him and to live a flourishing life that we were created to live. And the reason we can have that life is because Jesus freely gave everything for us. Somebody say freely. Jesus freely gave everything for us. And Paul will go on to say, when we become open-handed because Jesus is open-handed, it's then that God 
does something beautiful in our lives. Notice chapter nine, verse six. Notice what he says. He says, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided. Again, our generosity to God is not something that we are sold into. We haven't asked somebody to buy any. We're not, nobody's asked us to buy anything. But God is calling us to do something beautiful by opening our hands. He says, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. There it is. For God loves a, a what? Cheerful giver. I love that. Isn't that good? God loves a cheerful giver. And verse eight says, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, how often? All the time, right? You may abound in every good work. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Notice the word. Can we go back to the last slide? Notice the word that Paul uses here. It's cheerful. Do you guys know what uh, the, the Greek word translated cheerful means? Joyful. Isn't that cool? Hilarion's the word. So God loves a hilarious giver. God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a joyous giver. And I love that because here's this beautiful thing is that what Paul's saying is when we make the decision in our heart to be generous, right? Nobody's talked us into it. Nobody's guilted us into it because we know that never ends well when we do anything because we're guilted into it. But we freely give time, talent, treasure. We just open our hands, whatever. We give it to God. We become joyous givers. And then notice what Paul said there. He said that when we are joyous givers, God enriches us even more. He blesses us even more. His grace abounds even more. All the time, God is good, and God is good all the time. And so this beautiful things hap- thing happens inside of God's economy. See, doesn't that seem counterintuitive, though? Like, doesn't it seem counterintuitive? Why don't I experience the most joy when I get something for myself? God says, that's not how I made you. That's the lie that sin makes you believe. That's the lie that the the advertisements on TV and the bots that follow you online want you to believe. But joy is really experienced when we open-handedly, freely, willingly give to God. Last week, Mitch shared a little bit about this earlier. Um, This is the power of practicing generosity. Last weekend, a group of us, from Forefront went to uh, the Finishing Fund retreat. And Mitch shared some statistics earlier. Um, The the Finishing Fund is probably um, our biggest financial investment in missions that we do here at Forefront. Here at Forefront, we're a tithing church, meaning every dollar that comes in in, uh, through your gifts and offerings, 10% of that goes out in missions. 10% 10% of that goes out to reach local, regional, and, and global missions and help people inter, be, be introduced to Jesus and grow in their faith. And one of the, our big partners is the Finishing Fund. The Finishing Fund, basically, it's like a, imagine mutual funds for missionaries. So businesses, churches, uh, businessmen and women, uh, people that, that have, have done very well, they invest money into the Finishing Fund. And then uh, Doug Cobb and the leaders of the Finishing Fund will send the money out and we'll sponsor missionaries. And we've got a room, there's about 120 of us sitting in this room. And they began to share that over the last six years, five and a half years, they've raised $20 million for missions. 20 million. 
with the heart to send people to unreached, unengaged people group. An unreached people group is a place that has less than 2% believers in Jesus Christ. An unengaged people group is a group with no known believers. They are sending missionaries into hard to reach places in Africa, India, and Asia to share the truth of Jesus. Let's put this slide back up. This is what Mitch shared with you earlier. I mean, can you believe what God is doing? That in, you know, 19 years ago, there were 3,500. These are people groups. These are people with their own languages. These are people that Jesus knows, that God created, that, that are living and, and have never heard of Jesus. Not just never, uh, there's not a lot of believers. These are people that never heard of Jesus. And now there are 16 left. Now, let me talk about joy. We were sitting in this room, and you can ask Todd and Lori or Marvin Kim. When they shared this number, we were all like, hilarious, right? Like cheerful, joyful. We're like clapping our hands and high-fiving somebody. Todd was dancing on the table. I mean, like, we were so happy. That's what it looks like when you joyfully give to something, and you see what God does, and you're like, oh, my gosh, this is crazy. 16. And here's what's cool. They have a plan by the end of June for all 16 to be engaged. Isn't that amazing? God is so good. And when we give freely and willingly to something, we can be so joyful for what God is doing. And God is inviting you and I in our lives in that same joyful generosity. I want to, I want to kind of point to something that happened in John chapter six, you know, I I think one of the challenges that we often face in life is that we think, well, can I really make a difference? We think, well, you know, I don't make that much money or I live in a really expensive place and I really don't, I I, I don't really think I can make a difference, God. And so what we we say to God is that, well, I'm going to let somebody else make that difference. But for me, I, I just don't think that I can. But I want you to know that God is the God of taking loaves and fishes, taking five plus two and making it 20,000. John chapter six, we see that Jesus is speaking to a crowd. And and in that crowd, there are people who are coming to him and they're desperate and they are sick and they got family members who need healed. And Jesus has compassion on them and he's teaching them and it gets late. And Jesus looks at this crowd that the Bible says is about 5,000 men. We think potentially 20,000 with women and children. And the disciples said, well, Jesus, we should just send them home because there's no way they're going to have anything to eat. And Jesus says, look at John chapter 6, verse 9. There was a boy in the crowd, one of the disciples found, and it says that there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? And that's like a lot of us. We look at what we have. We go, what is it for so many? How are we going to reach the world? How are we going to reach our neighborhood? Nine out of 10 people in Denver don't even go to church. How are we going to reach them? And Jesus just says, have everybody sit down. And he takes five plus two and turns it into 20,000. And this is the beautiful reminder, guys, that we may have a lot to give. We may not have much to give, but whatever we do give, God is the God of taking loaves and fishes and feeding the multitudes. And what he's inviting us to do is just to step into this 
and play our part. Back in November, we shared with you guys that things were a little tight around the church and that we had fallen into a place where financially we were uh, looking at maybe some not so healthy options as we moved into 2024 and beyond. And so we invited you all to join us on 90 Days of Generous Living. Many of you, I think we're here for that in November. And I just want to say thank you and provide an update for this with you because you guys stepped up big. As part of this 90 days of generous living, 17 families for the very first time said yes to generously giving to God at the forefront. 17 families. That's awesome. Our overall, if you look at the, um, the, the, the tithes and offerings that have come in, we saw nearly a 20% increase in tithes and offerings for November, December, and January compared to August, September, and October. Praise God. I mean, you guys stepped up huge, and that was beautiful. And in a church our size, every single gift, large or small, makes a big difference. And what you guys have stepped up to give, Jesus has taken loaves and fishes and he's turning, them in, turning it into to beautiful things that we can connect with the finishing fund and we can meet and connect with families here in Southwest Denver and Colorado and beyond. Jesus is truly multiplying because of your generosity. But here's where I wanna be careful. I hope that God blessed you during these last 90 days. As your pastor, my, my heart is for you, that you get to experience the joy of giving, the joy of generosity that Jesus speaks about here. We, we live in a world where everything's trying to steal your attention and to steal your affection and to steal your heart. And one of the ways that Jesus says we take back our hearts is through opening our hands and being generous. And one of the biggest ways we see our spiritual growth in our lives is through our generosity. It's through giving to God first, whatever that looks like for you. It's giving to God first. And so you might say, hey, I gave these last 90 days, but I didn't really experience any joy yet. Sometimes it takes a long time. I wanna encourage you, don't just stop at 90 days. Turn into a lifestyle of generous living. Is it a blessing for forefront? Absolutely. But most importantly, it's a blessing for you. This is what God is calling us to do, to open our hands and to generously give. And as we do, God responds and fills us with this joy. And so stay intentional. Find your rhythms, find your routines and follow Jesus because he's leading you to a beautiful place. And our commitment here at Forefront is we want you to become, we want to become more intentional to provide you with updates on how things are going here financially. So you can celebrate with us when God turns five and two into 20,000. So we're gonna start posting our financials downstairs in our dream team area for you to go look at. Once a month, we're gonna send out an email with a snapshot so you guys can all see how God is moving here. And also in April, I'm really excited about this. We're gonna plan a vision and uh, a, a vision and financial stewardship night where we can just talk about who we are as a church and what God is doing through your giving. So I want to invite you to all of that. But here's where I want to close is just this. 
Jesus is calling you to follow him, to do life with him and to watch what he does so you can be more like him. One of the ways is by following along with open hands and watching how Jesus turns everything into something beautiful. So let's join him together. Would you pray with me?